Hey, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here, and I wanted to take a minute and just address all the campuses and, and announce our Christmas series, just introduce you to what we're gonna be doing over the Christmas series. And so, you know, if you remember back to the Nehemiah series, we uh, started the series by praying. Remember how Nehemiah prayed? And I said, hey, we wanna be a church that prays. And one of the things I asked you to pray for was to list some people that maybe to your knowledge, didn't know Christ, didn't have a relationship with God. And so to just begin to pray for them. Well, guess what? Uh, we're in the Christmas season and we have our Christmas Eve service coming up in just a few weeks. And it's gonna be a great service and we're gonna share the gospel. And one of the things I love about our culture is people, for whatever reason, think they should go to church on Christmas. And I think that's, uh, I think that's fantastic. And so we're gonna equip you with some invite cards. And I really wanna encourage you, take that list of people that you've been praying for and take a, as many invite cards to our Christmas Eve services you will give away and invite them out to the Christmas Eve service. We're gonna share the gospel. It's gonna be a candlelight service. It's gonna be a great service and we would love for them to come. And so I just wanted to put that in the back of your mind. Be praying in these next couple of weeks. Grab some invite cards and invite the people you've been praying for to come out and join us for worship on Christmas Eve. Secondly, I wanna to announce to you our, our Christmas series. Really, really excited about this series. Uh, and you know, it's interesting how each of the gospel writers approaches the Christmas story differently. But one of the ways that's unique, one of the things that's unique to the Gospel of Matthew is he actually starts the Christmas story with a genealogy. And a lot of times when we're reading the Christmas story, we just read through that real quickly. But uh, it's really actually quite interesting. I mean, if you and I went on Ancestry.com and we found out that we had someone famous or someone of nobility in our family tree, we would certainly shout that from the rooftops, let everybody know uh, the descent, where we came from. But and Matthew has some of those, of course. He's got the patriarchs and he's got David. Uh, but you know, there's some characters buried in the genealogy that I don't think if they were in our family tree, we would want everyone to know about that. And so myself and the pastors, as we began to pray about the Christmas series, we were asking the question, why are some of these characters, characters like Bathsheba, Rahab, why are they in the genealogy of Jesus? And we concluded that it's all about grace. God in his grace uses broken people to exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's so encouraging to me. And I hope that's encouraging to you that God uses people just like you and I, just like Rahab, just like Bathsheba, to be a part of what God is doing on the planet until the day that our faith becomes sight. And so I hope that you're encouraged as we unpack some of these characters out of the genealogy of the birth of Christ in this new series we're doing over the, over the month of December, The Unlikely Family Tree. You heard Pastor Sean grab a Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll spend really just the beginning of our time. It's going to serve as a launching pad into one of these stories in Matthew's genealogy. As you're turning there, a couple of things. One, Pastor Sean is actually going to be with us preaching here next week. I'm excited for you all to hear directly from our senior pastor. God's doing a lot of good things at Coastal all across the peninsula. Uh, it's, it's amazing to see what he's doing in our congregation here, and he's going to come and get to preach the second part of our four-part series. Um, and then two, I would say it's it's good to be back. I'm grateful for a little time off last week. I'm grateful for Pastor Hunter filling this pulpit and uh, sharing with us a powerful and really faithful word out of Psalm 119. When Hunter filled this pulpit last week, I got to spend some extra time with my family over at the Thanksgiving holiday. We became a family that I swore we would never be. We did the 5K in Williamsburg. Anyone else did it? Chris Conboy did it. Uh, 
uh, yeah, a couple of you guys, the Blue Talon 5K, um, and then we watched football all day. So it was a good day. It was good to be together as a family. Um, we are entering this season, church, between Thanksgiving and Christmas that I think for a lot of people gets really hectic, gets really busy. We run really fast. We have office Christmas parties, and for some of you guys, you have final exams, for a lot of us, we'll be traveling, we'll have people coming to us, or we'll go to be with family. And for most of us in this room, this Christmas season means family. It means we get to spend time together as extended families. Now, even that statement, getting to spend time with family, can be, in a room this size, kind of polarizing. Here's what I mean by that. There are people in this room, when I say family, it's a really good word. It's great. We love gathering together with our family. We have joyful memories from when we were kids around Thanksgiving and Christmas time. There are warm memories. There's affection. There's joy there. We love this time of year because it lets us gather with the people we love most. But I'm also trying to be sensitive this morning that there are people in this room, and I say the phrase gathering together with family, and it hits you different for any number of reasons. Maybe for you, you lost someone this year and you're looking at your first Christmas without a loved one. That's a difficult time. Maybe you have real trauma or dysfunction in your family background and you think about gathering with people who are part of that background and instead of making you excited, it fills you with dread. Maybe for some of you, you just don't enjoy being with your family and it's it's unpleasant. Again, in our church, we have people all across this spectrum, people who love their families, get along great with their families, and then people who really struggle to be around their families. But across that spectrum of difference, I've noticed one common universal truth. There are no mess-free, drama-free, perfect families in this church. Everyone say amen. Amen. We all deal with some kind of dysfunction, and some kind of brokenness in some extent. But here's another universal truth that I know and I believe this morning. Our God, the God of the Bible, is in the business of redeeming messy and broken people and messy and broken families. He did it with mine. I've shared my story before. I'm a first-generation Christian. And growing up, my dad, who passed away a couple years ago, left a legacy that was anything but Christ-like. Jesus was not regarded as the Lord of my home growing up. But I think now where we are as a family and my son and my daughters are now being raised in a home where Jesus is regarded as Lord. I mean, that's a miracle. Like God intervened in my life and that changed the trajectory of Lord willing generations of courtesies because God in his grace saved me. Like, I know that God has done that in my life. I know he's done that in many of yours. Many of your families have been redeemed by the gracious God of, of the universe because this is what he does. He takes brokenness and he brings beautiful things out of broken messes. And I know that because he did it in my life and he did it in the family of Jesus. So here's why I wanna start with Matthew 1 this morning. Over the next four weeks, we are going to look at four different stories of grace-empowered, Holy Spirit-initiated redemption in the family line of Jesus. Specifically, we're going to look at the stories of Judah and Tamar, 
Rahab and the Israelite spies, David and Bathsheba. And on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at Mary and Joseph, stories that are marked by scandal and stories that we might think have no business being in the lineage of Christ. But all of his stories are included in Matthew 1 for a reason. Each story represents a different time when God overcame the brokenness. God poured out mercy over the mess. And my prayer, again, is we're going to see this month that God is not removed from the mess and the brokenness of our lives, but rather God steps into them. He stepped into our lives to bring about redemption. He did it with Jesus, the family tree of Jesus. Out of brokenness, he brought about the Savior of the world. So let's do this. Let me pray, and then we'll read the first few verses of Matthew, and then we'll jump to our text this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention now to the preaching of your word, I pray for this time. I pray, God, that you would help me to be faithful to this text. I pray, God, that people would see Christ in this text, that you would do what your word does, God, that you would convict and challenge and comfort and encourage, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would see the gospel in this text, one of the most broken stories in the whole Bible. I pray we'd see redemption in it. And I pray, as always, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of your law. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. In the Messianic line, in the lineage of Christ, we see that Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by a woman named Tamar. Now, I want to preface our time with this. The story of Judah and Tamar, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know, is one of the messiest and really darkest stories we get in the entire Old Testament. And today we're going to walk through it. We're going to see that God does indeed bring beauty out of the most broken and dark places of mankind. So, Go ahead and turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 38. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 38. I wanted us to lay eyes on Matthew 1 to see the genealogy, and now we're going to look at the text, Genesis 38, as we walk through this story. As you're turning there, let me catch us up to speed with what's going on in the book of Genesis. I once heard it put that the entire Star Wars saga could be summarized, one family wrecks havoc on the universe. Genesis isn't all that different. It's not a story of one family wrecking havoc, but it is a story based around one family, a family that a good and holy and sovereign God has chosen to both bless all people and through which he might display his glory to all people. In Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham, promising to make him a great nation. The rest of the book then follows Abraham's family through the birth of his son Isaac, Isaac's sons Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob's 12 sons, which would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Genesis 37 through 50, we get what scholars call the Joseph narrative. The end of the book of Genesis is the story of how Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, is sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers and then rises to prominence with Pharaoh. But here in Genesis 38, where we are today, in the middle of the Joseph narrative, we see a little story that at first glance has very little to do with what's going on with Joseph. But as we'll see, God is going to work redemption 
to accomplish redemption in his people. Now we're gonna go through the story and pull out three key truths for us as Christians. We'll actually close with these and you'll have each one in your notes. I'm gonna alternate between reading and summarizing this passage. I'll tell you why. As you'll see, we're gonna deal with some pretty adult themes this morning. And I wanna be mindful of the younger ones with us in the room. So let's start by reading Genesis chapter 38, verse one. It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chesib when she bore him. Verse six, and Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. All right, let me pause here. Here's what's going on. Sometime after Joseph had been sold into slavery, Judah leaves his father and his brothers and he finds a wife, the daughter of a Canaanite. Now, this was Judah's first mistake in what we'll see. is gonna be a pretty terrible chapter for him. He leaves his family, all worshipers of the God of Jacob, all worshipers of the God of the Bible, and he goes and he surrounds himself with idol worshipers. He even marries one. And this is what Judah fails to see right off the bat. Who we surround ourselves with, church, is ultimately who we become. The closest people in my life and in your life will either push us closer to God or pull us farther away from God. In Judah's case, we'll see this. They pull him farther and farther away from the God of his father. So Judah has three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah, and finds a woman named Tamar to be his daughter-in-law, to marry his oldest, to marry Er. But verse seven tells us that Er was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so God put him to death. So Judah looks at his second son, Onan, and tells him to go and perform the duty of a brother-in-law. Now, here's where some context might be helpful because in our American society, this can seem a little bit crazy. Back then, it was standard practice that if a man died before his wife could have children, the man's brother would then have children with his brother's wife as a way of continuing the family line. This practice was called leveret marriage. And Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse five spells it out. I think we might have it on the screen. Deuteronomy 25 says this, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So get this church, Heir's death in Genesis 38 was a really big deal. Tamar was now alone, and it was now up to Onan, Er's brother, to continue the family line. And this is where I'm going to summarize. Verse 9 tells us in pretty graphic terms that Onan totally fails to live up to this responsibility. In fact, Onan wants pleasure, not responsibility. 
which gets at the very heart of sin itself. He's the opposite of a man named Boaz, who you might be familiar with from the book of Ruth. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer just like Onan. But unlike Onan, instead of using Ruth for his own gratification, Boaz honors his responsibility to her. Onan does the opposite with Tamar, and then God puts Onan to death. So here's where we are. Judah has now lost two sons because of their wickedness. He's got one left, Sheila, who isn't quite at the age for marriage. And this is where, incredibly, the story actually gets worse. Judah tells Tamar to remain a widow and to wait for Sheila to grow up. But verse 11, you can see it in the text, tells us that he's afraid that his third son will die just like the first two, almost like he thinks there's something wrong with Tamar. And so culturally, Judah does the unthinkable. In verse 14, when Sheila comes of age, Judah withholds him from Tamar and basically forgets about Tamar, which is a total abdication of his responsibility to lead his family. Now, I want to pause here because I think there's a, a pretty clear word in us for us this morning. Husbands and fathers, God has put you, God has put us in the position of leadership and headship in your home. In a unique and significant way, God is holding you husbands responsible for the spiritual temperature of your home. God is holding you husbands responsible for the holiness and purity of your marriage. God is holding you and me as husbands for the spiritual condition of our children. Spiritually mature churches are full of spiritually mature families, which are led by spiritually mature men. This is our responsibility, brothers. Our wives don't bear it. We do. So hear my heart in this. There are few things more destructive, and I choose that word carefully, than passive, apathetic husbands and fathers. And in this church, there will be no talk of sacrifice and submission on the part of our wives before there's talk of sacrifice and love on the part of us as husbands. We have to prioritize the spiritual well-being of our households. I can't tell you, church, how many families have been shattered and broken because husbands don't take this seriously. It's critical for us. It was critical for Judah. We see here in Genesis 38, Judah failed miserably to lead his home and absolute disaster followed. So you can see in the second half of chapter 38, tells us one of the darkest and saddest stories in all of scripture. Tamar has been abandoned and she devises a plan to bear children in the family line of Judah. After all, she disguises herself as a prostitute. She lays with her father-in-law, she becomes pregnant. And when Judah hears about it, verse 24 gives us his reaction. Let her be brought out and burned. The hypocrisy on the part of Judah is staggering. He's real quick to overlook his own immorality and real quick to condemn the supposed immorality in his daughter-in-law, not yet realizing that he's the one to blame. And she then makes it clear that Judah is the father and Judah has his moment of reckoning in verse 26. You can see it in the text. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. Tamar then gives birth to twins, one of whom would go on to be the great, 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 
great-grandfather of Boaz, who would be the great-grandfather of King David, from whom we get the lineage of Jesus the Christ. Everyone take a breath. I told you, that's a good breath. I told you, it's one of those stories, you read it and you're thinking, I'm thinking, how in the world is God gonna bring beauty out of this story? What is God doing in Genesis 38? I mean, this is about as bad as it gets. And I wanna be real transparent this morning. I did some legitimate wrestling with this text this week. I did some wrestling with God this week. God, what do you want us to see? What do you want your church to see? This word is inspired. It's good for us. You tell us it's God breathed. What do you want us to see from Genesis 38? I think this passage is in the Bible for a couple of reasons. I'm gonna give you a couple of reasons and then we'll move to our three truths this morning. Number one, I think that chapter 38 shows us that the Bible is a real book about real people in real places walking through real hardship. This is not this morning Hallmark Christianity. There's no Kirk Cameron here. Like this is a story of brokenness. And if you've been following Christ for any amount of time, you know that the Christian life is not an easy one. It's not a walk in the park. There's brokenness in it. Sometimes it feels like we as Christians are trying to swim upstream. We see that here in Genesis 38. Second, second reason I think this story is in the Bible is it gives us one of the clearest glimpses we have into the attack strategy of our enemy. Think back with me to Genesis chapter three. Most of you know this story. In Genesis three, Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. And in the third chapter, God is pronouncing judgment on the snake, on the tempter, the one who tempted Eve. In verse 15, God declares what scholars call the proto-evangelium, which is the first gospel, the first time we see the gospel in scripture. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the snake says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring or between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is incredible church. Like from the first chapters of the Bible, God is already promising the downfall of Satan through the offspring of woman. He's promising that the snake crusher is coming, the offspring of woman, and that he will bruise the head of the enemy. Now, here's what this tells us. Satan hates the procreation of the human race. He hates it. And he hates it because he knows that that's what will lead to his downfall. The woman's offspring will be his ruin. And so here's what he does. He launches every attack at every part of the childbearing process. I'm convinced this is why the book of Genesis is riddled with sexual immorality, adultery, and even treachery among siblings who are fighting over firstborn rights. It's because Satan hates the offspring. I mean, think about our world today, where we are today. The atrocity of abortion, the epidemic of pornography, even the proliferation of sex trafficking is all evidence that the enemy will do everything he can to distort God's good design of sex and childbearing within marriage. He hates it, and so he goes after the offspring. But get this, 2,000 years ago, in a little town called Bethlehem, the offspring was born, signaling to Satan that his reign of terror is over and that he is now defeated. Defeated, but still dangerous. God in the manger had conquered but listen, if you're here this morning and you're totally wrapped up in the chains of addiction, if you're totally wrapped up in sexual immorality, I want you to know this. Jesus has come so that you might have freedom. 
Like Jesus has come so that you might know true and everlasting joy, not superficial pleasure, but everlasting pleasure at the right hand of the Father. That's why he came. And the enemy will do everything he can to stop you from tasting that eternal pleasure and eternal joy by offering you the inferior trinkets of this world. Don't buy it. Don't fall for it, not for a moment, because there's better coming for us. I think stories like Genesis 38 are a reminder to us of what the enemy hates and how he tempts us. Finally, I'm convinced that the story of Judah and Tamar is in the Bible because it gives us a picture of how God really can bring beauty out of brokenness and how God is working to bring redemption out of the darkest moments of Judah's life. So let me give you truth number one in your notes. We'll see this clearly. Your past does not define your future. Your past does not define your future. Genesis 38, church, this story is a low point for Judah. He had left his home to live with the Canaanites. He had watched his children die for their disobedience, and now he's abandoned and impregnated his daughter-in-law. This is rock bottom for him. But remember where Genesis 38 occurs. It's in the middle of the Joseph narrative. In the very next chapter, in 39, we'll see Joseph being the anti-Judah. He resists sexual temptation. He honors and he seeks God. Here's the thing. If we look at our text today as an aside in the story of Joseph, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But if we look at it as part of the redemption arc of Judah, it all fits perfectly. See, God uses the lowest point of Judah's life as a catalyst for real and genuine heart change. We'll see this in the rest of Genesis. Judah goes from abdicating leadership to exemplifying leadership. Flip over a couple chapters to Genesis 44, and you'll see what I mean. In Genesis 44, Joseph is now the number two guy in all of Egypt. And when a famine breaks out, Jacob sends his sons, Judah included, to go and buy food. Joseph instantly recognizes his brothers and he tests them by putting a stolen cup in Benjamin's bag. When the cup is discovered, the brothers are brought back before Joseph, thinking that there's a real chance that Benjamin might be killed. Now, in the heat and the danger of this moment, Judah, Judah of all people, goes before Joseph and he pleads and he intercedes for his little brother's life. Not only that church, but Judah goes before Joseph and says, take me instead of my brother. Genesis 44, verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Do we see what's happening? Judah, the same Judah from the story in 38 is now putting his life down on the line as a substitute in place of another, foreshadowing his messianic relative that would come thousands of years later. So by the redemptive power of God, Judah has gone from selfishness to sacrifice, from cowardice to courage. Now here's what this shows us this morning. There is not a single person in this room who can outsin or outrun the overwhelming grace and love and mercy of God. If God could do it in Judah, he can do it with your life. Your 
past does not define your future. When we turn to Christ, God wipes the slate completely clean. He forgives our sin. He creates in us a new heart. And in the midst of our dysfunction and our brokenness and our mess, God brings about redemption. This means two things. Number one, if you're in Christ this morning, there is equality at the foot of the cross. Here's what I mean by that. We don't have first-class, second-class, or third-class Christians in this room. No matter what your past is, you have been forgiven and washed as white as snow, which means that for those of us in Christ, we are all one in Christ. The second thing that that means is that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, there's no way God could forgive me after what I've done, then listen, God redeemed Judah, a man who slept with his daughter-in-law, abandoned her on the side of the road. He can redeem your story too. As one Puritan put it, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Now, how can I be sure of this? This question leads us to the second truth we can pull from this story. Number two in your notes, God's purposes of election will stand. God's purposes of election will stand. I said at the beginning of our time that the book of Genesis is all about God choosing one family through which to bless all people. And that's what the doctrine of election is. Election is just God's choice. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament are clear. God is the one who chooses who will be saved. Romans 9 provides some commentary for us speaking specifically about God's purposes of election in this one family that we've been looking at in Genesis, Romans 9, 10 through 12. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, we're talking about Jacob and Esau here, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now, here's what this tells us. Before Jacob and Esau were even born, God had chosen which brother he was going to use to continue the messianic line. And his purposes and his plans were unwavering. Throughout the sin and depravity of Judah, God preserved the line. God preserved the plan. There was nothing that Judah could have done to mess up God's plan. Now, here's how this hits home for us. If you are in Christ this morning, know that before the foundations of the universe, God has set his affection on you and chosen you to be with him forever, to love him and to know him and enjoy him forever. Whenever I've gone through periods of uncertainty in my life, the words of Ephesians 1 function like a balm for my soul. Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God has chosen you, Christian, to be holy and blameless before him. And this choice wasn't based on God somehow knowing that you'd one day choose him. No, this choice was based solely off his good and gracious purposes. I'm gonna take us a level deeper here for a second for my theologians in the room. If your neighbor falls asleep, elbow them. This is really important. If God's plan of election 
was based upon the foreknowledge of us choosing God, then the deciding factor in your salvation wouldn't be God. It would be you because you're the one making the choice. And if that's the case, then salvation would no longer be by grace through faith, a gift. Because if you chose it, then that must mean that there's some merit, some moral quality in you that led you to that decision, a quality that other people who don't choose Christ don't have. That means that when Christ went to the cross, he didn't save you. He opened up a way to give you a choice to be saved. This means that you weren't saved by grace through faith. You were saved by works, the work of you choosing Christ. You see why this would be a problem? It doesn't compute. When we make ourselves and our choice the focal point of salvation, it does two things. It undermines the work of Christ on the cross, and two, it undermines the doctrine of justification by faith, which is married to the doctrine of election, which teaches church that God has chosen you, God has saved you by the work of his son Jesus, and that God will one day bring you to be with him forever. Now, here's why this matters for all of us in the room this morning. The doctrine of election should be a great comfort to Christians because it assures us that since there's nothing we did to earn our salvation, there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. Like we're safe and secure in the protection and the providence of God. And that means for us that when we feel as Christians overcome by sin, when we feel as Christians burdened by grief, exhausted by living this life, when we just feel like God is distant, which all of us Christians have experienced at one time or another, we don't have to fear that our standing in heaven is in jeopardy because God is the one who has assured it. God's purposes of election will stand. If the depravity of Judah could not disrupt God's plan of redemption, then the brokenness in your life and my life doesn't stand a chance. It's really key for us to understand. Our past does not define our future and God's purposes are sure in our lives. And this leads us right to the last truth we'll see in this text. We're gonna close this morning by looking at the how. How, how does God do it? How does he assure the salvation of his people? Number three in your notes, the scarlet thread of grace assures our salvation. The scarlet thread of grace assures our salvation. I've said this before, church, I'll say it again. The Bible is made up of 66 different books that all tell the same story. It's not disjointed or random, but rather linear and purposeful. From Genesis to Revelation, there's one grand redemptive narrative that's playing out. We see that in Genesis 3 with a proto-evangelium, and we see it here in chapter 38 as well. So look back with me at the end of 38. I want to pull one more thing from this text. When Tamar gives birth, she has twins, Perez and Zerah. And Zerah's arm is marked with a scarlet thread when it comes out first. But then Perez ends up being the firstborn. Now, here's what's significant in that for us. Even in one of the darkest chapters of the Bible, at the end of the chapter, we're given a glimpse, a taste, a hint that there's something better coming. Here's what I mean. In the scriptures, this is called the scarlet thread. And this scarlet thread in our text was used today to mark a firstborn. 
but it's significant. It has a broader meaning because it comes up over and over and over again in the Bible. The scarlet thread in the Old Testament points us to something. Think about it. In Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, how was their sin atoned for? God killed an animal, sewing together skins to give them a covering. Scarlet blood was shed. It was the first, the very first sacrifice for sin. On the night of the first Passover, Israel is huddled in terror in Egypt, awaiting the angel of death. What did they do to make sure that the angel of death passed over their camp and only hit the Egyptians? They poured red on the door, the scarlet blood of the slain lamb. Keep going. The people of God are in the wilderness now, constructing the first tabernacle to worship God. What color is used to weave together the garments of the priests in Exodus 39? The Bible tells us, scarlet thread. In Joshua chapter two, we'll see the story just next week. What does Rahab do to ensure that her and her family are protected from the invading Israelites? She hangs a scarlet thread out of the window and it is her covering. Think then about years and years, hundreds of years of sacrifices in the temple, animals being killed, shedding their blood to temporarily atone for the sins of the people. Scarlet running down the altar, all in an attempt to forgive sins. We have to see this code. For thousands of years, God has been waiting, hinting, foreshadowing a day when the scarlet thread of grace would once and for all cover over the sin of all of mankind. And every story of brokenness, every Judah and Tamar, every moment of heartbreak and failure in my life and in your life would one day be redeemed by the scarlet thread of the blood of Christ on the cross. It's one story. We see it all throughout the Bible. And because of the scarlet shed blood of Jesus, I can be sure that I am saved. And you can be sure that you are too because of the work of Christ on the cross. And so I think this word leads us to two responses. Number one, if you're in Christ this morning, you need to know a couple things. One, your past does not define your future. If God has redeemed you, your life now has a heavenly purpose. You're here for something greater than yourself. If you're part of this church this morning, you're part of something bigger than yourself. Your life matters. It has significance. And no matter what you've done, if you trusted in Jesus, he's wiped the slate clean. You are here for a reason. We praise him for it. We praise him that he is the author and accomplisher of our salvation. It's not us. I make terrible decisions all the time. God never does. God chose me. God chose you. And the proof of that is he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sin and resurrected him back to life. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, here's what I want you to hear. God has used every failure, every misstep, every sin, every piece of dysfunction in your life to bring you here this morning, to bring you here to hear about how good he is and how much he loves you. We talked about election, right? God has chosen. And so if you're here this morning and you're feeling a tugging on your heart, like you need something more than you have right now, that brokenness has defined you for too long, that sin has ruled over you for too long, then know this. It's very possible this morning that God is calling you to himself. He uses the preached word to do that. Did it in my life, did it in so many of our lives. And so your step this morning is to just surrender. Say, yes, Lord, I've seen now your pursuit in my life. 
save me from my sin, cover me with that scarlet thread of grace. And so here's what I want us to do. I want to invite all of us to stand. We're going to stand. I'm going to close our time in prayer. I want to invite our prayer team up. We'll have a couple of people who will come up to the front. If you need prayer this morning, come and pray with these brothers and sisters. If you need care this morning, come and pray with these brothers and sisters. If you want to talk about what it might mean to know Christ, come and talk to them. Don't leave here with unanswered questions this morning. And I'm going to close our time with prayer and give us a chance to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as I think about what a mess Genesis 38 is, God, I am so grateful that you've taken the mess of my life and that you've redeemed it. I'm thankful that you did that in the life of Judah, that his legacy is not an adulterer. His legacy is an intercessor, a man who offered to lay down his life. And because of that, we don't sing Jesus, you are the lion of Joseph. We sing, Jesus, you are the lion of Judah. Like you did it, God, you chose it. And so I thank you for all of my brothers and sisters in the room this morning, those in Christ. God, I pray that they would be encouraged this morning that their salvation is secure because of the scarlet thread of grace that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It covers them, it covers me. And if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, I'm gonna give you a chance. We don't do this all the time, but I'm gonna give you a chance right now in this moment to surrender to Christ as Lord. There's nothing magic about the words of a prayer. The Bible tells us it's a heart posture. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And that if we acknowledge, we believe in the gospel, that Jesus is God, he died on the cross for our sin, he rose from the grave. We can repent of our sin, believe in that gospel and receive Christ. And so if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you, pray with me and then come talk to us. Let's pray. God, you brought me here for a reason this morning. You are calling me out of my brokenness and my sin this morning. God, I thank you for revealing yourself to me this morning. I confess that I am a sinner in your sight, deserving of separation from you but because of your great love and your mercy, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sin, to take the penalty that I deserve and to rise back up from the grave. And so this morning, I put all of my faith and my trust and my hope in that message. Save me and change me. I want the new heart. I want the new purpose. I want the new life. God, we praise you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you.